You are listening to SALT's Teaching Social Justice Podcast. Hi, this is Olympia Duhart with SALT's Teaching Social Justice Podcast, and I'm here today with Christy Arth from Belmont University College of Law. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Let me ask you, what do you do at Belmont? At Belmont, I teach what we call LIC, Legal Information and Communication. That's our first year legal research, legal writing, appellate advocacy course, and it's all year for their first year. How long have you been teaching? Uh, Not a long time at all. I just started (laughs) in the fall of 2019, so I'm in my second year. What's it like being a teacher uh, in the midst of a global pandemic? A new professor, I should say. (laughs) I feel like it's kind of like asking parents who, you know, their first babies are twins. They don't know any different. Um, So this this is all I've ever known. So, you know, we're making it. We're making it work. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you today is to get some information about wellness. All of our students are struggling right now. And and frankly, many of us professors are also struggling. Uh, You had some interesting ideas about what you do in your own classes. Can you share that with us? Absolutely. So one of the things I do at the top of each class session, I call the mindfulness minute. And basically, I started integrating that because I really, it's, it's part of my teaching philosophy that if you're not in a state of wellness, you're not going to learn as well. You know, um, mm-hmm. if you are, if your brain is sort of hijacked by anxiety or stress or depression or whatever it is, you're not going to listen to me talk about CREAC or point headers or, you know, (laughs) grammar, et cetera. So, you know, I I really started the mindfulness minute from a place of of pedagogy and this belief that you need to, to take care of your own mind state to be a great learner. And how did you first educate yourself about how to do that? That's a really great question. It's been, uh, you know, just many years of my own sort of wellness journey. Um, When I was in private practice, I was on the executive committee or the the steering committee for the Defense Research Institute's Young Lawyers Committee. And I helped found the uh, wellness subcommittee for that Young Lawyers Group. It's a national group of defense attorneys. And so as part of my responsibilities starting that um, committee, you know, we started exploring all of these different modalities, Thai massage, sound healing, blah, blah, blah. They all sound pretty good. I I also, you know, it, it, it was so fun to explore these different types of wellness practices. And so, you know, what I try to do in that mindfulness minute for my one L's is, is introduce them to wellness modalities they might not have encountered before. You know, I kind of start from the premise that you all know that getting good sleep and eating right and exercising is good and healthy for you, right? Everybody knows that, but maybe you haven't heard of a grounding object before or how to use one. Maybe you haven't, you know, talked about flotation therapy before. Let me introduce you to that, et cetera. And how are they responding to it? They really love it. I, you know, I'm sure that there are a contingency of students who think that I'm, you know, a little bit out there, but <laughs> for the most part, I've gotten really, really positive feedback on it. And 
students will come to me later and say, oh my gosh, you know, I've used XYZ. For instance, those grounding objects, this idea that when you start to get stressed, you know, your amygdala releases these stress hormones and it speeds up your breathing and it speeds up your heart rate. And then your brain reads your body's signals of, oh my gosh, you have a fast heart rate and a fast breathing rate. That must mean we're stressed. So I'm going to release more stress hormones and it's just sort of vicious cycle. So the idea with a grounding object is that you break that cycle and you just pick up something physical that fits in the palm of your hand. Does it have to be a crystal? It, it doesn't have to be a crystal or anything <laughs> like that. Those students often tell me, you know, oh, you know, I started using as my grounding object this really special, you know, rock I got on a hike, you know, the hike where I proposed to my girlfriend, et cetera. Um, but it doesn't have to be some, something special like that. You know, it could be a pin, whatever's in your immediate environment. And the idea is that you just put all of your focus and your attention onto this object and bring this sense of curiosity to it so that your full attention is on that. What's it feel like? Is it rough? Is it smooth? If I close my eyes, what's the weight in my hand? You know, how's the light hitting it? What color yeah. is it? And because you're so intensely curious and focused on this object, your brain gets out of that stress cycle for yeah. long enough to sort of break that spell. And so, you know, students have told me, oh, oh my goodness, I'm bringing my grounding object with me into final exams and stuff. Oh, that's so, really good to hear. Uh, which is really fun to hear. And, you know, Sometimes, not with every wellness modality that I talk about in my mindfulness minute, but with some of them, I try to connect it back to um, the pedagogical objective of that class period. So hmm. like in the spring, when we're doing persuasive writing, I do a unit on organizing, you know, persuasive brief and the mindfulness minute that day is a finger labyrinth. So I bring cards out with a different labyrinth pattern for each student mm -hmm. and have them trace their finger through the labyrinth and then again back out. And so a labyrinth, unlike a maze, you know, doesn't have any offshoots. It's a oh. single path that you trace all the way into the center. And then there's only one way back out. Mm -hmm. And monks, typically use these for like a walking meditation practice or something. But since I can't take my students out into the world <laughs> and to, you know, to go walk a labyrinth, they can do those little finger labyrinths. And, you know, so that day I tie this idea of when you're organizing a persuasive brief, it's kind of the same thing. You want to set your reader on a one clear path with no dirt, no, distractions, no offshoots, you know, directly into the heart of your argument. What a great connection. And so um, that that's kind of fun when I can draw the connection. I can't always, but. Yeah, yeah. I really like that idea. And we had talked earlier about the connection you've discovered between mindfulness and social justice. Yes. Yeah, so when we actually started talking about doing this podcast, I started to research that a little more because I'll admit when I started doing my mindfulness minute, it was from a, a teaching perspective and I hadn't connected it yet in my own mind to social justice. But as I started looking into that connection more and more, see how 
supports that work for sure, because, you know, part of social justice work, um, at first two things, really, Mm -hmm. the first is, is self-care. Um, you know, if you're someone who's having to deal with a lot of microaggressions in your life, or you're living from a non-privileged identity in some way, um, being able to have that mindfulness and that ability to practice self-care is an incredible tool for enabling you to survive those things and to not only survive, but to thrive. And so, you know, I want my students to be, to have that kind of toolkit so that they can, you know, from whatever place they're at in their life, be able to, you know, access those tools and really be a successful person. And then two, in terms of social justice, not only is it like, you know, taking care of yourself, but then can you be an advocate and do the work? Mm. Um, I think it makes you a better advocate. You know, when we're having social justice conversations, typically they're hard conversations and they can be uncomfortable. And so to the extent that you're someone who can develop that presence of mind and that natural awareness, that's going to make you a better advocate when you can recognize, oh, that knot in my stomach, that's anger or, Mm. oh, that tightening in my chest, that's nervousness or that sweating, blah, blah, blah. That's so just promoting self-awareness as a way to, to what, just be more more responsive to your client's needs or to deal with the stressors around you as a lawyer? Absolutely. Um, If you aren't able to recognize, you know, the type of reaction that you're having to a particular client or, you know, as a teacher to a particular student, if someone raises a really weighty issue in your class, if you're not able to recognize and regulate your own emotional state, there's a a more of a chance that you're going to respond in a way that maybe you don't want to, or that isn't productive. So, you know, there's this idea that wellness enables you to um, take care of yourself, but also be a good advocate. Right. Um, The other thing I wanted to ask you about was another exercise you mentioned, is it profiles and advocacy? Yes. Okay. How does that work? So with the profiles in advocacy, I don't do those every class period like I do with the Mindfulness Minute, but you know, maybe every other class, at least once a week, I try to um, tell a story of a real life lawyer in my community that I personally know. So, you know, I'm not profiling oh. Justice Ruth Bader. So these are the usual suspects that everybody. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like these are real life people with jobs that you might have, you know, in three years, right? Um, And so what I've done with each of those people is I tell the students their career trajectory out of law school. And then I've asked that person ahead of time to tell me the story in response to this prompt. What's been your best moment or favorite part of practicing law or being a lawyer. And the stories that result from that prompt are really pretty amazing Mm -hmm. um, and very pretty widely. Because I have, you know, people who are judges, people who are prosecute, people who are defense attorneys, people who are big law, private practitioners, et cetera. Um, And so 
one was a career, she's a career clerk right now for a criminal court judge in Nashville. But prior to that, she'd been a solo practitioner um, as a criminal defense attorney. And she said, you know, one of my best moments was I was walking to the courthouse one day, years after I'd left my solo practice. And this woman rushes up to me and she said, you probably don't remember who I am, but you really helped me. I had a few thefts down in Cool Springs, which is a, a town near Nashville, and you made the difference. And, and so the attorney I was profiling said, you know, I, I then remembered this former client. I remembered her as a troublesome former client, <laughs> um, one who'd run from the cops multiple times. And I was, you know, like pulling my hair out, having to really negotiate beg and plead with the DA about her, but, you know, ultimately they got her a really good plea deal. And so the woman was at the courthouse that day, straightening out a parking ticket, not for a criminal matter. And she, you know, assured the attorney I was profiling that she's on the straight and narrow now. Um, and the attorney was just really moved and touched by that moment. And so she tells my students, you know, it really matters that you work hard on behalf of your clients and do what's right by people you may have hundreds upon hundreds of clients or cases, but the people you interact with generally don't have hundreds upon hundreds of lawyers. It's you. That's true. Um, which is so true. And, you know, we don't normally think about that having been practitioners for years. And so I tell stories like that to my students for a few reasons. One, the career trajectory piece, um, to sort of let them know that, hey, you don't have to have it all figured out right now. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know? <laughs> let me take that stress off of you as a 1L. You know, this person was a prosecutor, then she was a solo criminal defense attorney. Now she's a career clerk, blah, blah, blah. It's flexible. You can kind of take your career in a lot of different directions. And I think those stories of real life lawyers help students see that. And I have to admit, when I saw the term profiles and advocacy, I assumed it was here's Thurgood Marshall, here's Ruth <laughs> you know, so it's refreshing right. that you're picking people in the community. Yes, yes. And, and, you know, jobs and, and positions that feel really attainable, right. Mm -hmm. um, and so in addition to the sense of like, what are some career possibilities? Two, those stories, I think, um, really can create a connection to social justice because I get to introduce people who are out there doing that work in the community and they and the students can kind of say, OK, why am I putting myself through this really stressful crucible of law school? You know, <laughs> yeah. I feel like I don't have any time for myself and this is really terrible and the curve is scary and blah, blah, blah. Um, but this is why we're doing it, right? For those yeah. moments where this person said, like, you helped me turn my life around. Yeah, Thank that's you so, so much. Um, it's so powerful and hopefully is a, is a good motivator and contributes to the student's wellness, if only to say, oh, here's the end goal. Here's the light at the end of the tunnel, <laughs> you know? Um, and then selfishly, usually, I can connect that profile to legal writing in some way. Like I could talk about the documents they had to write to create this plea deal for this woman, you know? Yeah. So, so usually I can say and see, you know, legal writing is <laughs> very important. You're not gonna escape it. It sounds like it's so much fun to be in your class. Thank you for sharing <laughs> all these great, great ideas with us today.